Hi, I'm Tyler Smith. And I'm Alexandria Hadara. Welcome to Global Takes, America's number one podcast discussing global issues from the Black perspective. It's time for our voices to be at the forefront of foreign politics and innovation. This is Global Takes. Afghanistan, a nation plagued by war, famine, political chaos. The Biden administration pulled out American military forces back in April of 2021. Joe Biden, in his address to the nation, defended his decision to end the U.S. war in Afghanistan after nearly 20 years of conflict. President Biden said, we have to learn from our mistakes by setting clear goals when it goes to when we go to war and not becoming involved in nation building. The Taliban who were ousted from power by the U.S. shortly after September 11th terrorist attacks now control nearly all of Afghanistan. But what are the consequences of those policy decisions today? How will girls' education and women's rights be protected? Will we have a refugee crisis at the border? If the Taliban are unable to manage the country, how would children be affected during the aftermath of war? Today, we're going to talk to Christopher Nayamandi. He's the country director of Save the Children in Afghanistan. He has been in Afghanistan for seven years. Before his current role, he was the country director for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Afghanistan. Chris is a lawyer by training. He started his career as a field worker for CARE International in Zimbabwe, and he has been working in the humanitarian field since then. Let's welcome him to Global Take. So you have to tell me, um, I know you're currently based in Afghanistan, and so we would just really appreciate you just telling us um, just giving us your take on a recent power shift in the region with the Taliban um, now in control. And um, could you just share a bit about that experience and what it was like being on the ground when the U.S. troops um, were leaving and where were you? And um, I want to get some perspective. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having me. Just to make sure that I'm giving you, yeah, I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Is it Alexandria? Yes. And by the way, you can call me Chris. That's fine. Okay, Chris. Um, so, yeah, so clearly there's been a power shift now in Afghanistan. The Taliban is in control. I've been traveling around the northern parts of Afghanistan in uh, these past three days, uh, talking to communities, talking to our staff on the ground, and uh, talking to uh, the Taliban uh, on the ground, and, uh, talking to them about our work. Uh, what is clear is that the Taliban is, is controlling uh, the um, uh, all, all these uh, territories, uh, they have uh, their soldiers on the ground, and they have their appointees who are running uh, government business, uh, uh, collecting taxes and uh, um, uh, providing services, or at least attempting to provide services to the people on the ground. So, um, yeah, uh, the the in terms of how people are taking it, I think they are they are two things to observe. There are a lot of people who were tired of the conflict in Afghanistan, who thought that at this point any peace is better than the violence. 
After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats and our development experts, with the Congress and the Vice President, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. Hey, Becky, well, there are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country in what can only be described as a chaotic exodus. Now, it's been, it's been difficult. There's been a lot of chaos. Uh, people are worried about what might happen uh, now that the Taliban is in power. People are worried about some of the policy positions that they have been known to implement in the past, including, um, uh, uh, including very strict interpretations of Sharia law and restrictions on freedoms, uh, asking women to stay at home, girls not being allowed to go to school and so forth. So people are worried about that. Mm -hmm. When I talk to uh, communities, they are also worried about that, that their girls will be able to go to school. Yeah, can you just um, tell me a little bit about your feelings at the time when the U.S. Um, exited Afghanistan when there was a mass exodus of U.S. troops and operations there, and just how that affected, say, the children's operations and other NGOs when um, Biden decided to um, pull the plug and um, leave Afghanistan? So I was here throughout the process. Uh, in fact, I had just arrived into Afghanistan on the 3rd of July. So uh, when the change of power happened around the 15th of August, I was here. Uh, it was a very difficult period. Um, firstly, prior to the Taliban taking over, uh, there was an increase in the intensity of fighting across the country uh, in major centers. So our biggest concern was that uh, we were going to see violence coming into the major urban centers of Kabul where many of our staff had um, uh, taken refuge. As you know, uh, during, during the fighting that was happening around the country, some people were moving to the capitals looking uh, uh, for safe uh, refuge. So uh, we were quite concerned about that. Uh, what then happened uh, is that the, uh, the previous government fell. And when the previous government fell, uh, President Ghani left Afghanistan. Uh, the, the Taliban then just took over without fighting in Kabul. Mm. Uh, so, and then uh, the international forces were trying to evacuate uh, Afghans as well as other uh, um, uh, foreigners who were in Afghanistan. So that was a huge operation. Uh, my residence at that point was very close to the airport. So airplanes uh, leaving and going. There was the explosion that happened at the airport and killed a lot of, um, over 200 people died. And after that, um, uh, after the international forces left on the, on the 30th, uh, 31st of, 30th of August, everything went quiet uh, for a couple of days. So what we have been trying to do as Sydney children because when the, when, when the violence intensified, we had put all our activities on hold and put our staff into uh, full hibernation. So no one was coming to the office from around probably the 10th, 9th of August. No one was coming to the office and no one was uh, uh, we advising our staff to stay at home. Uh, so 
the work that we've been doing since then is to slowly broaden that suspension and bring our staff back uh, to the office so that we can begin our activity. Oh, okay. Wow. That's um that's quite intense. So you were there during the whole time, you never left. Yes, I was there throughout the whole time. Yeah, I was looking at your career path. I know you've been doing refugee work for a while, so uh, you're used to being on the battlefield, if you will. But that is quite um that is quite that's quite um that is something right there. Um so just want to know like how are the families and children um being affected during this unrest like um now that things have kind of settled down um just what is, what do you see on the ground i know you said they're um really worried about girls going back to school but just kind of want to get a little bit about um to get your take on things we're talking about the third of the population the population of about 40 million people the third of the population were depending on handouts, uh, uh, getting assistance from humanitarian organizations and uh, the government, uh, UN agencies, and so on. That's a huge number. Uh, the the was the easier drought. We're in the middle of the drought already right now. So even before the Taliban took over, they, they took over a country that is in the middle of the drought. Uh, there was COVID. Uh, the third wave of COVID happened around that time. Uh, in fact, we were just coming out of the uh, COVID uh, lockdown. Uh, millions and millions of children were put in school. Uh, our estimates were that three, at least 3.7 million children were not in school. The, the situation was already difficult um, for Afghans. And now, the, the conflict that happened, the fighting that happened, and then we ended up having families running away from their homes and trying to find sick refuge, especially in urban centers. Um, it, it, it's been a very traumatic uh, period for Afghans, very difficult period for Afghans to, to... So now, the situation on the ground is all those issues are still there, except there is less uh, donor funding now uh, to address the need on the ground, and there is a less permissive environment uh, for people to move around. The economy has crumbled. Um, yesterday, I met a school teacher uh, in, in a province called Saripu, which is in the north. And he told me that for the past three months, he had not yet been receiving, he had not yet received his salary for three months. So it's not much. Uh, but for him, he has not been able to receive that $100. So uh, he is not able to go to work. He is struggling to feed his family. And um, he says even now, he feels that the relationship with his, with his family has really been strained. And it has been strained because uh, they are asking him, so, you know, what kind of teacher are you if you can't even uh, buy bread for your family? So the situation has really become even more difficult now, including now we are talking about people who are considered to be in the middle, in, in the middle class of some sort, sliding below uh, the poverty that line and um, 
lining up to try to get assistance from uh, humanitarian agencies. So it, 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 it paints the picture of how if school teachers are experiencing this level of one, what about those uh, people who are unemployed would not have access to land and did not have any other level of opportunities? It's really a difficult situation. So is the Taliban like, I guess they were, since the schools are, are the schools operated by the government? So the, so the Taliban are the ones that were paid the school teachers, right? So, uh, Alexandra, you have to remember that the Afghan state was supported over 60% of its budget came from them. So, uh, health workers and teachers, soldiers, police, they're being paid for by international dollars. And all that funding is now in suspension since the Taliban forcibly took over government. So, in addition to the previous government having had one month, which was one month in areas, now the Taliban has taken over. They do not have the resources to, uh, to pay teachers and, and, and nurses and doctors. They don't have that money. Um, so uh, it's, I know that right now, the donors have been talking about finding a solution for health workers so that the clinics uh, uh, continue to be running. Uh, but we still have teachers. We still have many other services that provide providing essential services and basic services to, uh, to communities. And it will be important that a solution is also found uh, for them. So those schools now are under complete control of the Taliban. It is the local Taliban uh, um, uh, officials who are supposed to be paid for the salaries for those teachers and can't afford it. This, this situation is really complicated. Um, I know like um, your operations kind of had to like separate women from men, your staff, um, and then also the Taliban. Some people worried about returning restrictions on education for girls. What do you see? What's the forecast on that? Do you see um, that actually happening? Like them actually having really strict um, restrictions for girls' education and also like um, how have your, um, what's the process been like for you in terms of um, the Taliban separating your male and female staff? Do they actually come to your office or do inspections if you're not in compliance or do they use violent tactics to implement their policies? I was just... Yeah. So we are... Uh... We have taken the uh, decision that it's possible for us to implement our activities as long as female staff are allowed to be doctors. One of the reasons why I've been traveling around right now has been to negotiate that point. Uh, in some of the provinces where local officials were saying you can start your activities, but women cannot come to work, and we were telling them we can't. The, the truth of the matter is that as an organization that is serving, children, it's not possible for us to reach children until we can talk to the women, and it's not possible for us to talk to women unless we have uh, our female staff allowed to come back to work. So um, the, the good news is that we are, we, we are getting those permissions uh, from the local officials. I think 
out of the 10 provinces um, that we operate in Afghanistan, uh, only two provinces are remaining behind giving us those permissions. Uh, but in all the other eight provinces, we have received those permissions in writing. A part of the compromises that we have had to make uh, uh, for that to happen is to agree to uh, creating separate uh, uh, workspaces for women. So within the same office, you would have uh, different entrances and different offices for uh, doesn't mean that uh, female staff cannot interact with male staff. They can, uh, but unfortunately, those interactions would have to be limited. Uh, the Taliban has not come to our offices to make sure that uh, we implement, we are implementing those policies, uh, but they, we have committed to abide by those uh, uh, by those conditions um, uh, because we, we believe that um, it would be better for us to be able to provide assistance instead of no assistance at all. Um, then on your point about girls' education, so this is a big, big issue. Primary schools, which is uh, from grade zero to uh, grade six, have been allowed to reopen uh, uh, with co-education with boys and girls in the same school. And with both male and female teachers being allowed to teach uh, that age group. However, grade seven to 12, which is the, uh, the high school here, has not yet been allowed uh, to reopen. What the Taliban has said to us is that they are working on a policy of how, uh, well, girls 7 to 12 have reopened, but without uh, girls, or at least according to policy. They say that these schools can open, but only for boys and male teachers. And uh, the, the girls, uh, have not yet been allowed to come to school uh, at these ages. What the Taliban have said is that these they, they would like the, they would like girls who are work, who are in grade seven and twelve to be taught by women, female teachers, and they would like them to be in separate uh, uh, classroom. And they are working on that policy. So we are looking forward to that policy. We hope that that policy will be expedited so that schools can reopen. Uh, however, there are going to be challenges there. Afghanistan already has a very low level of literacy. It's not easy for me to imagine that we are going to find the number of teachers that are needed to make sure that we teach secondary school uh, uh, girls uh, separately. So it's going to be a challenge. Afghanistan uh, already right now has not had enough facilities. So separating boys and girls is likely going to disadvantage uh, the girls because the facilities are not enough, the supplies are not enough, and uh, likely we are going to see the, the deprioritization of uh, educating girls. So it's, it's a difficult one. I think that's one of the uh, difficult difficult that we are doing. I had a meeting with the Minister of Taliban Minister of Health, um, uh, a very warm, soft spoken gentleman, where I reminded the importance of making sure that girls go to school. And he says to me, Of course, it is, it is the Taliban's position that girls will be allowed to go to school. They're just working on the policy. However, 
last year because of COVID and conflict, out of the 52 weeks in a year, girls were in school only for 44 weeks. Sorry, girls were not in school for 44 weeks. So they were only in school for probably eight weeks only because of COVID and also so any further delays that the Taliban might put on, on you know, announcing that policy and implementing that policy and ensuring that girls go to school is going to result in, uh, uh, in girls further missing out. And remember, out of, the, out of the children who were not in school in the past, even before the Taliban took over, over 60% were girls. So it's a huge challenge already uh, uh, bringing girls to school. And then there is the optics and the, uh, you know, the, the, the environment. When, when, when the environment has become a bit more toxic because of these discussions, parents will then choose to be safe and keep their children at home. So it's important. I think it's important that the Taliban work on a process of detoxifying the environment, the discourse, so that parents also do not self-censor. I see a lot of self-censorship from the parents right now, including for girls who are in primary school. But they're just concerned about their child being stopped uh, at a checkpoint and then being asked whether they are of age or not and which class they are in. So they choose to keep their children at school. So the girls' education issue is, uh, is an important issue which is going to be difficult to manage, but we will have to work on how to work with uh, the authorities on that. Well, that's quite um, intense. Like, I can't imagine, like, you know, your child being stopped on their way to school by um, a government official with the guns. And, like, when I, the image of the Taliban is very violent on the Western, in Western media with, with the guns and the, the Hummy um, big trucks and everything. So, just curious to know, like, um, are parents deciding to keep their kids in, at home and just teach them at home? Are there like teachers just taking the schools to the to the like doing more homeschooling? Are they offering are, are there like some like private networks of teachers looking um, working with um, students in their in their homes as opposed to actually traveling to teach them in a school setting? Yeah, so that's when you see that people are always innovative and uh, 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 people always find uh, solutions. And there are solutions that work, or at least solutions that have been used in the past, uh, including what is called community-based education, which is a form of middle ground where um, it's probably closer to homeschooling. So here we're talking about a few families coming together and getting their, their children uh, to go to one of the one of the homes within that community and being taught by uh, by teachers whom they trust and so it's possible that we are going to see more of that especially for girls where uh, communities come together and then there are one or two uh, teachers who can then provide uh, basic education to children uh, in their in their homes or their that's so that's that's a good start, but that's not enough. You can't teach science, uh, technology, and mathematics in those environments. You can't 
you know, you need a proper uh, schooling environment for uh, for girls to be able to break some of the uh, barriers uh, in Afghanistan in particular, I think. Um, that can work on very lower grades. So the community-based education, which, which is a methodology that we use also, we use it for grades that are for early childhood uh, classes, ECCD, as well as maybe from grade one or from grade zero to grade three. Uh, after that, ideally, the children should be in a formal uh, uh, facility and um, with specialized uh, teachers and access to, you know, to opportunities to debate among themselves, critical thinking, and for socialization with others and so forth. So the school environment is the best environment that there is. Uh, but in the absence of that, it appears that we might have to make do with uh, community education for, for, uh, for the lower grades. So even with that said, I mean, I'm sure it's very difficult for women to even go to work if they're struggling to um, allow girls to go to school. Even women going to work is quite challenging. Um, I was just wanting to know how Save the Children gained much ground in their humanitarian efforts as a result of um, the Taliban being in control. And um, are you guys operating in full capacity and like, so, there the, the is some good news. I mean, the bad news is that we still have two provinces that have not yet opened. We are still negotiating with the authorities for female staff to be allowed to come to the office and what kind of activities that we'd like to do. Um, then the good news is that because I think, I think the violence has really reduced uh, quite significantly. There was intense, intense fighting and we did not have we were losing access to some of the communities that we had been working with for a long time. Um, however, now with the violence having uh, reduced, we, it appears that we might be able to extend our, our services now to those areas that were difficult to reach in the past. Uh, and so uh, it's an opportunity. Doesn't mean that there are no challenges there. There are challenges in the terrain, very difficult. There are no uh, the, the roads are not well developed. Some of them were destroyed as, uh, as a result of the conflict and flooding that frequently happens. And during during winter, uh, some of the places become completely cut off from the world. So it's not it's not easy uh, for those for us to reach those areas. However, it's possible that we might be able to see our activities being extended uh, to. Uh, to areas that we are not able to reach in the past. So we are not yet at full capacity. Uh, we are preparing to surge and scale up our activities. Um, and there are opportunities, uh, but we will see how the environment uh, develops going forward. You feel like as a black man, it's a little bit easier for you to negotiate or work with the Taliban and Maybe they feel a little bit more kinship or is a little bit it easy transition to work in Afghanistan. Mm, I think it's not it's not easy. I think the first days uh, were, were much more difficult for me because it, it was it was difficult for me to understand uh, 
agriculture and so forth. I've been in Afghanistan for <clears throat> almost seven years now. So wow. now I do understand uh, the culture and the context quite a bit. So there are a couple of things. I mean, as a black person in Afghanistan, you, we, we kind of, I kind of like relate, or they kind of like relate to where I'm coming from. Can understand, uh, you know, the struggles that we've to that we've had to go through ourselves, and so in some ways it's easy um, uh, that way. Um, for most of the communities, uh, the only black person that they that they would have seen would be in, in real life would probably be a military U.S. military serviceman. So usually the first question is, "Are you American?" and uh, of course, I would like to say no, I'm not, because then uh, the question might be, were you in the military in the past? And you know, it's, it's not. Um, oh. uh, in, in some communities, it's not. Um, uh, it's not necessarily uh, a good thing to be American. Um, and then, the, and then, of course, there is a fascination about being black and where you are from, from Africa, and really, you know, how is the life there, and how do you compare? Uh, life there and uh, here, and what has been, you know, the, the uh, some of the questions that I that I get are about how we struggled against colonialism, how we how we managed that, you know, some of the heroes from Africa, including Nelson Mandela and their stories. So I get to we get to talk about that, mm-hmm. and um, in some of the provinces, especially in the east as you go towards Pakistan where uh, cricket is very uh, is a very um, a popular sport. The discussion sometimes turns to cricket because our, the, the Zimbabwe cricket team uh, it competes uh, at high levels uh, worldwide. Oh, okay. Pakistan, in India and so forth. So, so you know, sometimes the, the icebreaker in those communities is, I'm from Zimbabwe, oh, Zimbabwe. So do you remember this player and that player? Um, very good players. So they, they do uh, love their cricket quite well. Um, it's, it's not an easy environment. Of course, there is, uh, uh, they likely there are some racist comments that, uh, you know, that are coming their way sometimes, but you know, you have to, you have to manage uh, through that. I am leading a team a diverse team that includes Asians, black, white, and so forth. And to us, I think it is the mission uh, that's important, and we try to work through some of the challenges together. Mm. Oh, that's quite interesting um, how people perceive you and how that affects your own success and um, with your organization will Save the Children. Um, just looking at some other um, thoughts here. Um, I would just want to know, like, I know there's been a lot of updates in, in the news about humanitarian organizations on, around the world, you know, choosing to stand their ground, stay on, stay in Afghanistan, let's not leave the Afghan people behind. Um, and that's in response to, of course, he, um, Biden um, choosing to exit um, U.S. operations, military operations there. Uh, how has your organization heeded the call? And um, what would be the ideal involvement of humanitarian organizations on the ground in Afghanistan? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Save the Children has been in Afghanistan since 1976. So we, we were here during the previous Taliban regime. We were here during the uh, uh, 
by EPS and NATO military operations and we remained. And one of the reasons why I stayed behind was also to reassure uh, our staff. We have over 2,200 staff across the country. Uh, was also to reassure staff that we have to stay, we have to uh, deliver. Uh, there was a lot of focus for the evacuation and the way hearings about the evacuation, how it was handled. I know that, you know, it was important that the evacuation should be handled. I understood that at around 125,000 people were evacuated by the US government during that time. And that's a huge number. There are still 40 million Africans in Afghanistan. They have to, they, they, they do not have the opportunities to leave. And um, uh, whether and most of them did not choose, they did not choose uh, to, uh, to be led by the uh, uh, Taliban, uh, but they are here and they need assistance. So from our perspective, as an organization that is neutral, uh, it was important that we were able to stay in Afghanistan and demonstrate our neutrality. The military forces were leaving. We were, of course, concerned about that. And then when the embassies were leaving, of course, that was a huge matter of concern for us because what does that mean for us? Uh, and uh, was that, does that mean that, you know, the funding that is coming to Afghanistan is going to reduce and so forth? So uh, it's, it's important that as NGOs, NGN agencies, uh, we decided to stay uh, to demonstrate our commitment to neutrality um, uh, and, in the, and, our, and in the, our independent uh, decision-making uh, uh, stance. So uh, as said the children, I, I think there is no doubt that there is a commitment to stay as long as the situation allows. Right. Yeah, I know this past Tuesday, um, the G20 summit, they were talking about their um, the future of US of relations with the Taliban government in Afghanistan. So um, if these countries do decide to like cut humanitarian aid and in punishing Afghanistan, in punishing the Taliban for their takeover of the government, what do you how do you see that? Um, in terms of the future of, of say, the say, the children's operations and the other issues you're dealing with, are there like any other um, funding that could be, that you guys are receiving that are not linked to this humanitarian aid um, that Western countries are providing to organizations like yourself? Yeah. So there are discussions about whether the Taliban will be recognized or not, or whether donor funding is going to flow into the Taliban or not. I think those are huge political discussions. And uh, Save the Children will not comment and does not have much influence over that. Our position, though, remains that we are here to deliver humanitarian assistance. And the donors must ensure that in their decision-making, they put the mechanisms in place that do not necessarily punish the Afghans, civilian Afghans, and especially here, we're talking about children who have not chosen this situation. Or they could have been my children, except that my children 
Um, so there are, and there are mechanisms to do that, you know, to sidestep and ensure that uh, um, uh, funding does not, uh, can be routed through other channels and, uh, and that funding reaches uh, Afghan. Uh, NGOs are here, we are here to deliver assistance. UN agencies are present uh, to deliver assistance. So uh, I would, I hope that the uh, discussions uh, in the in the donor countries would include those solutions. How do we ensure that in our in our decision making processes we do not necessarily uh, uh, punish uh, the innocent population in Afghanistan? Um, it's it's inescapable though. Um, to ask these important questions, uh, Alexandria. So we know that uh, over 2,500 clinics in Afghanistan were being run by donor funding. And we know that those clinics were a lifeline to uh, reducing child mortality, maternal mortality, and so forth. So surely, there has to be a solution for those clinics. Mm. We're talking about here saving lives during childbirth, which I can't believe that we're still we're still talking about that in 2021 and in 2022. But the reality is that in Afghanistan, when you look at the numbers, they are still shocking. They were shocking even before the Taliban took over. They are not shocking because the Taliban is now in charge. And so, if we neglect the Afghans in this way, I think for me, it's going to be it's going to be a moral blot on our conscience that we left the Afghans uh, because the Taliban took over. Because I don't believe that that should be a part of our you know our decision making process, or at least the donors shouldn't decide deciding that way. So I hope that the uh, powers that be. Uh, find those solutions uh, for uh, for the Afghans who remain in Afghanistan. Right. I mean, um, this is quite critical because if they don't, then we have a migration pro um, problem. Um, there's just so many problems that could result in just completely abandoning um, the country. And that's an important point, right? That's an important mm -hmm. point uh, that. The, this today's world is a well-connected world, so we cannot uh, we cannot imagine that we are going to um, confine the problem with Afghanistan into Afghanistan because we simply can't do it. Uh, neighboring countries right now appear to brand uh, millions of refugees are in Pakistan and Iran, and uh, uh, the migrant crisis into the EU, EU, UK, uh, into the EU, uh, Germany other countries, Italy, if Turkey, if you check uh, the record, it shows that a lot of them have been fueled by uh, Afghans. So if there is a deterioration of services, lack of access uh, to such basic services as painkillers and so forth, uh, unlikely that, likely we are going to see you know, Afghans trying to find a solution by leaving their country. Great to um, meet you and um, all the great work you're doing with Save the Children. And uh, we really enjoy um, having discussion about 
Afghanistan and future of humanitarian aid in the country uh, with you. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Alexandra. And that does it for Global Takes. Thank you so much for joining our podcast today. I hope you were inspired, informed, and ready to change the world. Please join Black Professionals in International Affairs. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And of course, please write a review. Thank you so much.